Accounting Influencers Broadcast Network presents Success in Accounting. Sponsored by Dext. Hello, Rob Brown here on the Success in Accounting podcast. On behalf of the Accounting Influencers Podcast Network, we have five shows going out, one every day of the week. We are continuing with our panel series with prominent, influential, strong, authoritative female leaders in the accounting and fintech world. We have a wonderful panel with us today, and we're going to discuss diversity and leadership and what it takes to be successful in today's very challenging world. So I'm going to ask the panelists to introduce themselves in just a moment. As we do this, let's set a little bit of context here that we are in challenging times. We're just emerging from the pandemic. 53% of accountants are women at the moment, but we know that they are chronically underrepresented in leadership roles. So this is where we are giving strong female voices a platform to share what the issues are and talk about them with a view to making the world right. So we may bust some myths, we may right some wrongs, we may just endorse everything that is happening right now, but the world is changing and we have these strong female voices to comment from a very experienced perspective. So Nayo, can I ask you to kick us off with a quick introduction? Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. My name is Nayo Carter-Gray. I am the owner and founder of First Step Accounting, where we make accounting a little less taxing for small business owners all across the U.S. And yes, that's trademark, so don't use it. <laughs> um, but we do handle virtual accounting as well as tax preparation. Um, and we primarily work with those service-oriented businesses that are making 500K in revenues and below. I find that they are the ones that need the most help. Um, especially around compliance. I'm also the founder of the Taking Your Firm Virtual Summit and the creator of Black Dad Accountants, a directory for individuals to find a Black accountant online. Thank you very much. You've obviously got more time in your day than the rest of us, Naya. That's wonderful. Avni, welcome. Great to be here. Thank you. Uh, my name is Avni Desai. I am CEO of Shellman. We are one of we are the largest niche uh, CPA firm that just focuses on uh, technology audits. So we perform audits related to cybersecurity, security, and privacy. So things like SOC reporting, high trust, bed ramp, ISO, and pen testing. So we are U.S. based, actually in Tampa, Florida, and uh, it's great to be here. Thank you, Gabrielle. Welcome to you too. Hi, thanks so much for having me. I'm um, excited to be here. Um, I'm Gabrielle Luma. I um, am the CEO and co-founder of Mod Ventures a client advisory service firm. We also do um, outsourced accounting advisory services and tax um, tax prep and, and advising and tax planning. Um, we are um, in Tucson, Arizona, and we are a fully remote team. So we have a team all across the U.S. and we have clients all over the U.S. as well. Um, we, well, currently I serve on multiple boards. Um, I'm on the AICPA um, Retirement Community Committee Board as the chairwoman. And um, I'm also one of the three CAS workshop um, uh, facilitators for the CPA.com. So um, really excited to share uh, my perspective today. It's not just what we all bring to the table. It's what we learn from one another, isn't it? Because if we all have anything in common, it's that we're not sat here thinking we've got everything sorted and we have all the answers. And uh, I love that. Laurie, welcome to you too. So I'm Laurie Kaiser. I'm the founder and CEO of Kaiser Consulting. We are an um, advisory for accounting firm and compliance firm located in Ohio. Um, but since the pandemic, we have people and clients all over everywhere. Um, so I'm actually uh, proud to share that we are the number one accounting firm in the U.S. for female equity ownership. 
Uh, my management team is made up of seven out of seven uh, very strong leaders. So um, I, I'm also just finishing my year as chair of the U.S. Society of CPAs. Well, it's wonderful to have you all with us. And uh, I'm strongly getting the sense that in the accounting world, gone are the pinstripe suits and bowler hats and waistcoats of the stale male and pale brigade. And there is a new wave coming through, and that's wonderful to see. So let's start with some uh, opening remarks. And Gabrielle, I'll ask you to kick us off here. You're leading a firm. What are the key priorities for today's leaders? And where does diversity DEI fit into that for you? Well, I think that we're always looking at how we can better serve our clients. And so, you know, we have a team that's very, you know, strong female-oriented um, leadership team. But we are looking at, um, you know, building more uh, diversity in the way of language. And so we have clients that are looking for us to speak Spanish. And so, you know, we're here right on the uh, Mexico border. And so we have lots of opportunities to add uh, Spanish speakers to our group and really, you know, dive in deeper in that arena um, and provide more services across the border. So those are the areas that we're looking at most. Um, we're about um, actually 30% male. And so we we have a strong female representation, let's just say. <laughs> As you build your firms, is positive discrimination in your mind? Do you want it to be that way? Are you intentional setting out for that kind of blend or that's just how, how it's come about? No, it's, it's actually how it's come about. Um, you know, we don't see a lot of male um, interviewees, you know, a lot of people putting their names into the hat. And so it's been really interesting when we do get a, a male um, op an opportunity to hire a male, we're really excited because it brings more device diversity to the um, whole team. So I think it makes us be um, better because we all have different perspectives. And Laura, that's important, isn't it? If we're going to be representative of the community out there and the, the client base that we've got, we don't just need men and women. We need young and old and generational and all kinds of minorities represented. Talk to us a bit about your priorities as a leader, Laurie, and where diversity fits on that. So our firm is also um, about 75% women and 25% men. Um, we Part of the reason why we have so many women in our firm is we let everybody in our firm work uh, the days and hours and um, weeks that they want to work. We let people take the summers off. Um, so we have tended to um, attract more women who generally um, are doing more of those household uh, family chores and want, the, uh, need, want and need a little bit more flexibility. Um, I would say we're really focused on um, trying to make sure we hear all those voices, you know, younger people, older people, um, veterans, LGBTQ, like we just want, we think that the more variety of opinions you get at the table, the better answers you're going to get to problems. My daughter's studying criminal justice at East Carolina University right now, and she's been introduced to the term wicked problems. I don't know if you've come across this term. Avni, you're nodding right there. You're familiar with that term? I've heard it recently, <laughs> A wicked problem is something that has a global problem traditionally that has no easy answers. So um, poverty would be a wicked problem. It's a very complex problem with a number of stakeholders. And... When you look at the world today, there are so many complex problems around that need diversity of thought to speak into, to cover all the bases and give all the different perspectives. Uh, otherwise, we'd just keep going down the same old routes. Uh, Avni, talk to us about uh, your leadership priorities and where DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion fits into that perhaps. You know, for us, our number one priority, you know, we're a professional services firm, as um, everyone here is, it's really attracting and retaining talent. 
I think it's the nature of the business that money is always going to be a staple in exchange for effort. So of course we're staying competitive in both our salary offerings and our bonus structure that's always really high priority. But I think what's really equally important is providing our employees a genuine opportunity to nurture their career. And these days, you know, we heard it, it doesn't mean that providing this cookie cutter career track where advancement means higher pay. You know, in my view, um, that many prospective workers are out there really seeking opportunities to work in an environment that really empowers them. So, you know, we heard, you know, being able to work flexible hours, you know, if you're a mother or a father and you need to pick up your children, you know, you have to be flexible in order to best showcase, I think, their individual skills and free them from micromanagement. And that's what motivates them truly to provide the highest quality service to our clients. So, you know, we want to attract top talent. We need to treat them like top talent. And that means management has to trust the team members with responsibilities of completing tasks. Um, instead of handholding, you have to show them that you have faith in people. So here at Shellman, we try to do that. You know, we engage um, and we're realistic with our candidates at the start. So they understand expectations of what their role is going to be. And once on board, you know, they have the option to schedule one-on-one -on -one conversations with their leaders, practice leaders, and so forth. But, you know, they're empowered from the beginning to do what they want to do. And I think it makes for a very different picture that, um, you know, we can pitch to potential team members. And 100% DEI is part of that equation because we are trying to build a firm where everyone feels welcome and that they can reach their peak of success. And we're very different from, you know, the other firms here is we're actually about 70% men and 30% women. And that's because I think we're in a, we're a technology focused organization. So we do need to go out there and we need to like be cognizant about bringing a diverse fleet. You know, we're looking at different places like, you know, um, historic, historical black universities. We're also looking at, you know, non-traditional, um, you know, accounting makers. So outside of accounting and technology. So it, we have a lot of work to do to get to, you know, equity of 50. Anaya, we had a, a gentleman on our podcast recently called Hersham Frierson. He's a partner at Crow. He's the chairman of the National Association of Black Accountants. And he tells a story very vividly about him coming through the ranks. And there was nobody like him. He couldn't see anybody further up the food chain, if you like, that was representative of where he came from. But you sit there as a black accountant. And we shouldn't be talking about flexibility and diversity as, as if it's a big deal. But we weren't talking about this 10, 20 years ago, were we? It just was. We weren't talking about this 20 years ago. And... Um... But, you know, it, ignorance is bliss, right? It is easy to not talk about something when it's not a problem of yours. Um, and so as a younger Black accountant, I've been doing, I've been in this industry now for 29 years. I started taxes in high school. Um, and so before I even left high school, I knew exactly what my major was going to be. So just imagine uh, me, a young black woman trying to come in this profession and and feeling like there are no doors open. Luckily, where I live, there are two um, well-known black CPA firms and I got an internship at one of them. And my mentor at and boss at the time provided me a different path versus the CPA. So I'm an enrolled agent because I focus a lot on tax. And in the U.S., that credential allows us to be able to talk to uh, a to handle tax matters in all 50 states without the pressure of having um, gone and taken 150 credit hours and passing this four-part exam that is written in such a manner that is just very exclusionary in and of itself. Like the price, the cost of being able to afford to get an advanced degree and to, to take a study course to sit for the CPA exam, we really need to examine that. 
who is this test made for? Um, but that's neither here nor there because I did get my MBA. I have sat for the exam. So I know what that process feels like and looks like. Um, and I just chose a different path. And so I, I'm excited to be on this panel today and hearing how these wonderful professional women are managing DEI and their practices. And I'm looking at it from a, a wider view. I'm actually trying to help change the profession in a whole, uh, giving those younger Black or people of color looking at the profession and saying, oh, there are people there that look like me. So I do uh, a lot of work for the National Association of Enrolled Agents. I'm actually on their DEI committee. And it's just crazy that this committee just came into play this year. It, it wasn't thought about before, um, but they realized that, hey, this is a problem for our organization. And so I'm, I'm spreading the message by also going back to talk to those uh, college students and saying, hey, accounting is losing talent. Why are you not joining? Uh, here are some people who aren't what you imagine an accountant to be, uh, and they are into the things that you're into. Like, you know, I have some clients that stream on Twitch. I'm like, these are clients I work with. And they're like, oh, you work with content creators? Like, it's just giving them a different overview of what accounting can look like. It doesn't have to be, as you mentioned, the, the guy in the pinstripe suit with the bowler hat. Uh, it can be someone who's into makeup or someone who, you know, goes swimming with sharks. Accounting isn't this, you know, this stagnant thing where we sit at our desk and just talk numbers all day. We talk technology. We, you know, go to conferences and, and party and have fun. But we're also very serious about who we serve and how we serve them. And we're ethical. And we, you know, we just, we love what we do. And hopefully that shines through in a nice, meaningful way that encourages people who don't look like us to join or stay in the profession. That includes everything from age to race to you know religious backgrounds. Uh, one of the the key people in my life is is blind, and so one of the things that I'm passionate about also is your website being available for visually impaired people. It's things we don't think about until somebody else brings it to the forefront. So, you know, I love having these type of conversations because we can really learn from one another on how to best introduce, you know, new topics or even things we can consider that we may not have considered before. Let's talk about your own career styles. Laurie, I'll, I'll start with you on this one. We, we are said to be the composite of all the people that have led us and all the books that we've read and all the seminars we've been to and all the TED Talks we've watched. And it makes up our own style. So tell us a little bit about your journey and your style of leadership. I started my career in public accounting, which was a great place to start. I feel like you get exposed to working for 10 to 15 people in your first year. And my leadership style was an accumulation of the great leaders that I worked for. I was like, I'm going to do that when I supervise people and when I lead teams. And it was also a whole bunch of bad leaders. Like, I'm never going to do that because that makes people feel small and unimportant. And so I really attribute sort of my style with seeing lots of good leaders and lots of bad leaders. And so I wanted to emulate the good leaders. That's a good example. I'm on the record as having a, an alcoholic father. I disowned him in the end. He drank a lot. I'd like to think I'm a very strong father, but having that anti-role model, I just did everything that he didn't. It was that simple. That shaped exactly who I wanted to be by avoiding the very behaviors. And Laura, you're right to point out the bad people and you say, I'm never going to do it that way. Adney, tell us a little bit about your journey and your style of leadership. Sure. You know, for me, it's probably personal. It's definitely personal. You know, 
my mom has always inspired me. You know, she came to the United States. She was in her 20s. She had $50 in her pocket. Two young daughters, my two older sisters. She really left a familiar and more comfortable life. You know, she didn't speak the language. She, you know, wasn't a typical religion that was here. But, you know, they settled here and she worked long hours of manual labor, which she didn't have to do in India. You know, her parents were very well off. Uh, my dad had a great government job, but they left because they wanted a better life for their daughters. Um, and, you know, she made sure that there was always food on the table while really being that pillar of reassurance, you know, telling my dad, hey, we made that right decision. We might not see today what the fruits of our labors are, but um, she felt very confident. So I always look back in awe of the sacrifice my mother made kind of blind, you know, leaving, coming to the U.S., starting all over again. And she displayed like the strength, right? And she was, she and other immigrant women have done the same braving, almost impossible, um, you know, change the destiny of their children's lives. And that has always been a constant motivation for me. So her story always stays with me as a one person. Her story stays with me that, you know, one person can really change lives. So when I think about, you know, leadership and I say, you know, this problem, you know, we talked about, you know, the wicked problem is too big to solve. I always think about her and saying, you know, one person can really change the lives of not only their kids, but, you know, I can, she changed the life of myself and, you know, I've been able to change the life of many people, you know, at the firm. And so uh, that really kind of, I always think about, you know, small steps can make changes. So as a leader, you know, you have to be willing to take that leap. Um, and yeah, Right, what's forged your style of leadership over the years? I was fortunate enough that I've had great bosses um, or a couple of great bosses. One of them, when I was, you know, kind of newer in my career, asked me what I wanted my career to look like at that particular time. Um, and I told him I wanted to supervise and he sent me to management training, which is a thing that I, I think most people have never experienced as I talk to my colleagues. Um, but it really kind of honed in on taking off the worker hat and putting on the management hat because they're two totally different things. And how when you're a manager and a leader, you have to look at who you're leading and work within their parameters and stop trying to put them into your box. Um, and so really my management style and leadership style over the years has really evolved to kind of meet the people I'm working with where they are. So, you know, there are people who can learn by doing where in others by showing. And so I try to figure that out early on and, and help the people that are working with me or working alongside me really lean into that and then develop and to get that confidence to really, you know, take on those leadership roles themselves. So that that's kind of where I fall on the spectrum. <laughs> I sometimes tell the story of how my wife and I met. We met in a health club or a gym and we'd go there at seven o'clock in the morning and I would be the kind of person that would go into one of the the circuit training classes, the fitness training, and some big sergeant major type would say, Brown, you piece of dirt, give me 50 more push-ups. And he'd shout at me. And Amanda, my wife, would go in a lycra, and I'm slightly making fun of her now, and she'd go off and do her own thing on the machines. And if somebody shouted at her at 7 o'clock in the morning, they'd get slapped. So it just shows how different we all are and what motivates us and how to get the best out of people. Gabrielle, tell us a little bit about your story and what shaped your style of leadership. Um, well, 
you know, my story began, you know, in public accounting, like a lot of us. And um, I was there for about three and a half years and I could just not see myself being there long term. And so um, I had a baby that was a major trans transforming transformative moment for me. Um, and basically I decided from there, I wasn't going to go back. I was going to start my own firm. And so at first it was, you know, very slow going and I had to learn a lot um, and manage a baby. And I also had a seven, seven-year-old, um, daughter and newly married to my husband. So, you know, there was a lot of things happening in my life. And so, you know, it was step-by-step step. and I don't think that I was even truly into leadership until, you know, I started getting coaching from a business coach because I realized I was just really bad at it. And so I started getting some, some business coaching and started working with um, someone who could really help me mentor me. And I say, you know, John Maxwell was just such a huge, um, you know, um, influence on me. He really has, you know, so much leadership um, material out there and he still is producing content. So it's just, it's amazing to, to listen to him. And, you know, over the years, I've just been influenced from, you know, one decision to the next, you know, you, you start to think about your whys and Simon Sinek and, um, you know, why am I doing this? What am I trying to accomplish? And, you know, the, a lot of the things that, um, that uh, Avani said was, you know, to make a difference in people's lives. And that was always something that was so, so important to me. And so, you know, how could I help influence and help build a firm that um, could be the change that I wanted to see. You know, I didn't see female leaders, for, you know, creating a, a firm like mine. I didn't see opportunities that um, I wanted to provide to other people. And so that has been really my passion is to, you know, have the environment where a working mom could go to work and not feel guilty because we've all felt it, you know, and that working dads could go to work and not feel guilty. And that, you know, if you had a parent who was ailing, that you could be there for them. And there's a lot of, you know, different family um, dynamics that happen that, you know, we as women have to, we, we step up to the plate because we're nurturers. That's, that's who we are. And so, you know, I've, I've evolved quite a bit over time. And I would like to say that I'm a good leader now, but it's because of all the experience that I've had to, you know, kind of navigate on that road. Um, but you know, that's, it's, it is the passion of my life. It is why I'm here is to make a difference in people's lives. Have any of you felt just an open question talking about leadership style felt that you've perhaps needed to defeminize your approach to fit in into what probably was a man's world as you came through the ranks? I don't have a feminine approach. I'm one of the very straight and narrow people. And I think it offends people because it's not so frilly and girly. Um, and I've had people get offended by me because they're like, you're not supposed to talk to me like that. And I was like, picture me as a man, me saying this to you, would it, would it have the same meaning? And they really had to step back and say, oh, it probably would. So you're imagining me to be one way and that's not who I am. Um, so <laughs> it's quite interesting when we get that, when I get that question, like, oh, are you girly about your management? Absolutely not. Like I am, I am going to tell you when you did something right. I'm also going to tell you when you did something wrong, but I'm dealing with adults and I'm going to treat you as a grown adult, whether that's in the client role or in on the team. And so you have to learn how to accept, you know, the compliments and the criticism because they're both going to come from me.
Gabrielle, you're nodding at that one. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So the people pleasing side of you, you know, who you really, really want to make everybody happy, but as a leader, you have to step up. And I also come from a very, I think, um, more male type of personality type where you would typically say, you know, just very driven and very direct. And um, it does hurt people's feelings. They don't know how to take you, you know, because women are most of the time very, you know, compliant. And, and if you're not compliant, you're seen as difficult or, um, you know, too ambitious, or, you know, there's a lot of labels that we um, acquire over time because we just don't put up with the, the nonsense. And so, um, you know, I've had to really, balance the people pleasing side of me who wants to make everybody happy and continue to be that leader. And so that, that continues to be, you know, something that I work through on a day-to-day basis. Like I have to really sit back and go, okay, am I trying to people please here and not speak up when I need to, or am I, you know, really being direct and doing the right thing when it comes to the team? And Avni, Gabrielle mentions the word ambitious there. That's kind of a dirty word in some circles, isn't it? That a woman would show ambition. That doesn't go down well with some men. That's right. I mean, I can tell you, I've heard that multiple times. I mean, I, I think the one story that really comes to my mind is I, I have three kids. I had a baby about a year ago and someone came to me and they said, wow, how are you going to do it all? Be a mother and run a firm. And then I came home and I asked my husband, who's a surgeon. And I was like, has anyone asked you that? They're like, no, everyone's like, congratulations, right? I mean, it's just this mindset that we really have to change. And, you know, every time someone tells me that, I go, women have been mothers for thousands of years, right? And they're still able to, you know, and I can go into this, but, you know, it's not a disability, even though we take short-term disability when we are moms um, to go out on maternity leave. But, you know, the couple of things that I've heard people say to me is, oh, you have a feminine way of handling things, being empathetic and listening, those aren't feminine ways, those are critical skills I think all leaders need to have, right? It's not feminine or masculine. Like if you don't have those skills, you're not going to be a good leader. And that really frustrates me is like, you know, if you're empathetic and you listen and you look at people in the eye and you ask them about their families and, you know, it's it's not feminine, it's critical. And, you know, we have to, we have to embrace that as leaders. Quick thought from you, Laurie, on this one. There is no doubt the research tells us that a more female style of leadership is more authentic, more consensus building, more empathetic. They're not naturally qualities that men have either required or or wanted to show in the past, but we can do it intentionally. But there is a softer side to women leaders, if I can stereotype that way. Do you sense that? And it's probably more effective in today's challenging times. I do think women in general are a little bit more empathetic in their leadership styles. And I do think that's one of the reasons that we are um, very good leaders in service firms, right? Because service firms are built, our product is people, right? And so the ability to attract, retain, create um, happy paths for people is what is going to make people stay and follow you as a leader. And if you can't keep and retain the best talent, you can't grow your firm. So I always um, see my leadership style as trying to find, trying I need to be able to give direct and critical feedback to people because that's how they're going to get better. Um, But you can do it in a way that's empathetic and with the shared interest of, I want you to be successful and you want to be successful. So I'm going to be delivering you some news that you're not going to like initially, but you need to hear it. And it's going to be important for your path forward, right? So I really believe that um, you can give that critical direct feedback in a a way that is going to be more receptive 
um, and empathetic so that the person can be successful. I'm reminded of Steve Jobs, passed on now, of course, a former CEO of Apple. And uh, apparently he was horrible to deal with. He was very dismissive and very critical of his team. And when pressed about this and his leadership style, he said, it's only because I want what we're working on to be better. He never claimed to be the best communicator, but he had a way of making sure they all adored him in a way to get the job done. And that's the kind of tough love we need, I, I guess, alongside a, a more authentic, warm, nurturing style of leadership. There's some great insights there. I'm going to take it in a different direction, ladies, if I may, and talk about failure and mental resilience, because you sit here as very successful women in very prominent senior roles, and many would listen to you and watch you right now and think, well, they've got it all sorted, or it was easy for them, and they never put a foot wrong, or they had great role models, or the doors just swung open for them, and everything was great. But Avni, let's start with you on this one. Building mental strength comes from adversity. Have there been any hiccups along the way for you or big failures that you've learned from? Several. You know, I, I think failure is really the stepping stone to success because, you know, you get grit. But, you know, kind of thinking of uh, stories, you know, in 2016, I was actually um, asked to speak on a panel about auditing blockchain technology. And the moderator and I had gone through the topics and my objectives that I wanted to cover. So when we get on stage, you know, maybe a thousand plus people, you know, I barely began to answer the question when the moderator moderator actually starts speaking over me and essentially explaining the standards that I had ended up educating him on. You know, so inside I was frustrated, but probably more disheartened, but I didn't say anything that day. And I have to think like part of that came from my upbringing. Like my parents, who I said, you know, were both immigrants, moved to the U.S. in the 70s. They were so thankful to be here. Like I, my dad would tell me the story they landed um, at Newark, New Jersey, and he kissed the floor. And, um, you know, I remember one day I came home from school. My dad is a PhD in mathematics, but ended up working as a janitor at a fast food restaurant. He was outside painting over some racist slurs um, in our state, Ohio suburb. You know, six years old, and my blood was boiling, but my parents didn't say anything. There was like no discussion, no explanation, no validation of my emotions. They actually acted like nothing ever happened. And they kept on saying, well, it's actually don't make a fuss. Why are you causing trouble? Be silent. Don't tell anyone. Be grateful no one got heard. And I heard that for years and years growing up. Like, don't be offending and be pleasant to be accepted. But what, what happened was acceptable meant that I had to act demur and accommodating at my own expense, right? So for me, that's really started. That's where all of this, you know, what I think kind of adversity and failure was. I always was told to keep my head down, work really hard. People will see you for your potential. Just be confident in your work. So I was successful and I was ambitious. You know, my colleagues admired me. My superiors admired me. But what I couldn't do was I failed to assert myself at high level meetings that mattered. So I felt less effective in meetings than I did in other business situations. I continued to have my voice ignored. It was drowned out. But I thought it was okay. Hey, I'm at least at the table, right? You know, my parents didn't even get a chance to be at that table. But really, it was an epiphany one day. I also worked uh, in public accounting. When a male colleague came to me after a management meeting, and he took me outside and he said, why do you let people interrupt you? Why do you apologize repeatedly before you even start a topic? Like, why do you fail to back up your opinions with evidence, which you have, because we talked about it before. And then I realized it wasn't that I wasn't being heard. I lacked confidence. And that's when I decided to change, you know, um, and I had to use, like, I had to exude this level of confidence, but it took that long and it took someone, you know, stopping me. And then I said, okay, well, that's what I'm going to continue to do. You know, I'm going to be, and in that process, you know, I started feeling safe enough, secure enough, 
self-believing enough and authentic enough. Um, but it took decades to get there. There's a lot of guilt, isn't there, in not speaking up when you know you should do. You feel terrible afterwards for not having called it out. Now, you don't come across as the kind of person that would get interrupted in meetings, but I'm making an assumption there. Were there any big failures for you along the way that have shaped you? Well, uh, you're right. I, the whole interrupting in meetings thing, I would really not let somebody do like do me like that. Um, it, I don't know where my confidence has arisen from, but it has definitely been a part of me since I was little. I'm going to blame my dad for that. He basically told me, you can do and be anything you want. There's no limitations. You can Anybody else can put on you. The only limitations are the ones you put on yourself. And so I'm going to tell you, you have no limitations. You believe you can fly, you can fly. And so in my mind, I can do and be all. Um, but with that said, I'm also a little overly ambitious. So the pandemic really proved to me that I really want to help everybody. And so we we took on way more work and way more clients. And the impact of accepting all of those clients without the TLC we would normally give our clients really showed up uh, this year. So we we brought on a few clients and the clients we brought, brought on, we ended up dis, wind up disengaging because they were unhappy with service and refunding all of their fees. That for me was a big wake up call um, because it helping everyone took me away from what the mission really was. And so now I'm taking a step back to say, how do we want to treat our clients? How do we want them to feel? Um, it is really wonderful that you feel like you can do it all and be all for everybody, but realistically you can't. And that's a hard reality for me. And, you know, people might be like, that's not a failure, but it is because I looked at that money I had to give back and was like, I have some disappointed clients out there. That is the thing that makes me feel the worst. Screw the money. It, it was the clients weren't happy. Um, and so this year we're going into it with a different mindset. Me and my team are sitting down having a retreat and really mapping out the customer service journey. Because if it's one thing I want our clients to walk away with, it is a great experience even when they're leaving us. Um, and so, you know, we're trying to turn the failure into a win in that regard. But, you know, sometimes I get in my own way. <laughs> Another very honest answer. That's two sides of the, I, I can do anything and I can't do it coin. That confidence, it can take you too far down the road and you're having to scramble and get back to a point. And that hits reputation hard too, if you're letting down clients. You're right, it's not about the money. Gabrielle, your career trajectory, was it just plain sailing in a straight line to the top or any bumps in the road for you? <laughs> oh my gosh, I think... There were so many bumps. Like I, I was a practicing CPA, but I had no idea how to start a business. I didn't know how to, you know, hire employees. I didn't know marketing. I didn't. You were know, a young mom at this time, weren't you, as well? Yeah, I didn't know anything. So you know, I had so many failures. You know, that's why I say, you know, trust me, I failed so many times. I know the right way now. <laughs> you know. So. <laughs> but yeah, no, I think it's, it's taking, you know, those failures and, and persevering through it and being like, I guess I'm the type of person that just keeps pushing. I don't care if I messed up and I'm, well, don't care. That's, that's not true. I'm really hard on myself. Okay. So those are the things that I have to get over in order to keep going. So not be so hard on myself that I stop trying, you know, like I just give up. So, you know, um, I have a funny story. I was just looking through one of my daughter's um, uh, rings and inside her ring, it says never give up. 
And that has been like the mantra in my family. And what I've taught my daughters is just not to ever give up, persevere through it. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to make wrong decisions, but it's how you come out of those things. Um, Disappointing clients. It really sucks. It really, really feels bad. But once you've, you know, come to terms with, you know, we're not doing things the way that we want to do things, then making that decision to, to move on and do it the right way, the right way, you know, it's a, you know, it takes a lot of um, humility. It takes a lot of grit and accepting that, Hey, I don't have all the answers, but I'm going to get them. And I think that that's always been something that I've just been able to build on over and over again. Um, throughout my career. And Laurie, I had the word grit, put in resilience, whatever you want, but it's true these days that everybody is contending with somebody, with something. Nobody's got it all sorted. And the vulnerable leader, one that's willing to front up and be honest and say, "I, I don't have all the answers. I've not got it all sorted. That takes a certain amount of character and resilience that you can only develop through failing, would you say? Several times when I was growing my firm from one person to 100, I would, I got stuck, right? And I could tell that I got stuck because I would hit a growth pot plateau where I needed to like totally retool and make some investments to get to the next level. And sometimes that was really hard to figure out what those investments were. Um, I would reach out to my network, to other entrepreneurs, read books, um, you know, just kind of searching for what, what do I need to change to create, you know, what within my firm needs to change so that I can get to the next level. And often it was that I needed to change, right? I had to elevate myself to the next level of responsibilities and delegate some of the things that I was really good at, but I didn't really need to do any longer. And that those things would create great opportunities for the other leaders on my team. Um, But it was my comfort level with a lot of those activities, right? I was good at them. I'd done them a long time. Um, so I found that I constantly need to push myself so that I am feeling very uncomfortable with some of the things that I'm doing, because that's where you need to be to hit the growth spot. We're doing a series of panels next year with men, and we'll be addressing some of the challenges that men face as leaders. And yes, we're talking about women here, but for instance, workaholism, being those workaholics and being judged by your career men struggle with, they don't talk. I guess you as women, I was laughing out loud, you women can lean into your girlfriends and your friends. Men don't admit weaknesses. That comes back to being on the playground. If you admitted you were weak on the playground, you got beaten up. So men don't share stuff like that. Men don't have friends that they lean into. Uh, So those panels will come up. But just a quick question to finish on this one for any of you. To what degree have you leaned into your network to get through these tough times in a way that perhaps many men wouldn't? So I have a a crew of wonderful women that I call my biz BFFs. Um, I definitely would not have taken some of the leaps that I've taken if it were not for them, because I run things past them like, all right, this is what I'm trying to do. Am I crazy? Um, And they will, you know, kind of help me work through (laughs) some of my mental challenges with some of the big swings I want to take. Or if I just need to vent, because sometimes we have, you know, situations come up where we're just like, oh my gosh, I just need to tell somebody that's going to understand this uh, before I shoot off a a fiery email that somebody might screenshot and put online. And so I get to vent to them as well. So having my biz BFFs have really helped elevate me. They've encouraged me. They've, you know, if I needed to cry, they've let me cry. And and they support me in, in ways that, you know, 
your spouses or your family just can't. So they have been a big proponent of, of where I am today. I, mean, I know family's very big in your uh, timeline, isn't it? Have you lent into them at key times and been vulnerable? Oh, yes, definitely. You know, uh, I agree. I also, I have a, I have a tribe, you know, it's both, uh, my mother lives with us, you know, when I travel, uh, she helps with the kids and she raised me. So I know she's doing a great job raise, helping raise them. Um, but also, you know, there's a lot of guilt being a mother. I mean, um, but I have this tribe of, you know, moms at school who will text me and say, hey, today's pajama day. Don't forget. And, you know, I have a wonderful management team, you know, everyone from my COO to our chief technology officer to our CFO who, you know, allow me to step away when I need to. And, you know, I don't have to worry about it. And then I have a very, very uh, a husband who also is, has a job that's probably as demanding as mine. But, you know, they say um, behind every successful woman potentially uh, is a man. But, you know, for him, he stands right beside me. So takes half the domestic work, um, you know, helps with the kids, helps with, you know, um, being that sounding board when I have. And you need all of that. And because there's no way I could do it alone. And um, I ask for help. You know, I reach out to um, my tribe when I need someone to talk to. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to say for anyone to be able to do this on their own. And for those that uh, think that they can, you know, that's one thing I tell young women um, and young men, you know, coming uh, prior to being parents that you need help. Like it, it's okay to ask for help um, as you grow your career inside the firm and outside the firm. I'm sure that's going to come up with these panels with men is that they don't readily ask for help. Gabrielle, you, you readily admit weaknesses, I guess, and reach out and you're okay saying to people, I'm not coping here. Yeah. I mean, I have a great business partner and she's been like my right, right hand for the last 10 years. And she, you know, we talk about all kinds of things and it really, it's really helpful there. But my husband is like my biggest cheerleader. And before the pandemic or right before the pandemic, like um, his dad passed away and he decided I'm done. I'm done with this. I'm done working. I'm not going to do this anymore. Um, so he's retired. And so he's been a really great um, partner in that he's taken over a lot of things. And it was like just at the right time because my daughter was finishing up um, high school. She was, you know, trying to manage what life looked like through the pandemic. And it was tough. It was really, really tough on these teenager um, kids that, you know, who were used to so much, um, you know, activity and working, you know, being with their friends and stuff. So he really was a great partner. Um, and he now sees what I do. Like he didn't know really what I did before. <laughs> So it's been great to have him home, but, you know, like he really handles a good portion of um, the work around the house and, you know, keeping me fueled and, and, you know, bringing me sandwiches when I'm on, you know, hours and hours of <laughs> video conferencing, like he's amazing. And so, you know, and I do, I have those girlfriends that I reach out to that are non-accounting and in accounting. Um, and actually guys too, like I have some really great, um, mentors or friendships that have just been great throughout the years. And um, that's how you really build a business and keep going is having that network. I see you nodding, Laurie, too. There's a great quote by Martin Rutt. Martin Rutter is American, I believe. He says, you've got to do it by yourself, but you can't do it alone. And most of what you do, Laurie, is you on your own. You're on the phone on your own. You're handling that tough decision on your own. You're in that car on your own. You're traveling to that client meeting. You're doing your emails on your own, but you need other people around you, don't you? Absolutely. I have the tribe that Avani was talking about and 
Uh, my dad was an entrepreneur, so he's a good resource. My husband had his own business. He's a good resource, especially talking through those difficult people situations, right? That that you need to handle in the best way. And sometimes you need to reach out to more than one person, right? Get lots of different viewpoints on how to handle something. Um, but I would just say one of the things I think is really important is that each person gets to decide what their version of success in, in a career looks like, right? It isn't the same thing for every person. And it might be something different for you each and every year of your life, because the other things in your life, the family, the friends, your own health are going to impact how career fits in at different times. Let's bring this to a close, ladies, with some practical tips. We've discussed a lot of issues here, and I, I really appreciate your candor. Naya, let's start with you on this. Final tips and uh, words of encouragement or wisdom for our watchers and listeners about what it takes to lead in tough times. What would you say to that? So the first thing is really leaning into your network and community. So I, I mentioned my Biz BFFs. They, that really helped propel me, and I am a big fan of having others to be able to lean on, whether it's, you know, your family to help with some household responsibilities or your friends to be able to help talk you off the ledge or even giving you practical advice. So that for me is always like, you need people. So don't, don't try to do all the things on your own. It's okay. Go to a conference, meet some people and say, Hey, can we keep in touch? <laughs> and don't just take also give. So you have to deposit into those relationships. Um, the second thing for me is having a schedule. So I know I'm one of those people that likes to do all the things. Um, and so in order for me to manage that and still have a life, because I am a workaholic, if you leave it up to me, I will work every moment of the day, um, scheduling. And, and that means scheduling free time, time away from the computer, time away from the work, time away to do things that have absolutely nothing to do with what you do on the day-to-day to, -day, to re-energize you and keep you creative. Um, and it, you know, creativity in accounting is always one of those little taboo words, but really leaning into those, those skills we don't use on a daily basis, like, you know, art or drawing or learning a second language or even cooking. Um, those do help us refocus on the things we do day to day. Um, it it kind of helps us take a, take that big picture and then make it a little prettier. So, you know, those are my two favorite, favorite things. The third one is really going to be education. I am a big fan of continually learning. And that is, you know, taking continuing education in accounting and technology courses. It is also learning skills that you may not do on a day-to-day -day basis, like marketing, um, because it helps you see other parts of the business in a new light or a different way. It may also help you if you have a team members who are doing these skills, it may also help you understand what their process is a little better so that you can be that better leader, uh, learner, <laughs> better leader. <laughs> so those are my three practical tips. Well, leaders are readers, right? And leaders are learners. We, we totally get that. Gabrielle, what are your key takeaways for the audience today? Well, I would say definitely, you know, make sure that you get help. And one of the, the things that I did just recently was hire an administrative assistant or a, an executive assistant, actually. And it's been amazing, like life-changing. I can't believe it. I'm so happy. <laughs> she manages my schedule <laughs> and keeps me on track, which I love. So I think, you know, if you can invest in that, 
invest in that, invest in a housekeeper. If you need to invest in um, a nanny, I just heard of somebody actually getting a night nanny, which I think is like mind blowing. Cause I didn't have that, but if I could have, I would do that where somebody could come in and, and you could actually sleep, right. When you're, when your babies are just brand new. So I think that's, um, you know, one of my biggest tips to working parents and also if you're in a ro- remote environment and you're working virtually, you know, take it, take advantage of the opportunities to get up, go work out, go, you know, have lunch, go get off of your desk and walk around, call your mom, take advantage of the time that you have to, to do that. Because a lot of us just think, you know, if you change to your desk and, you know, like you're working in a cubicle in a corporate office, no, you're not doing that anymore. And so this remote virtual environment is there for you to expand and be even more of who you are in the workplace as well. That's so good. Thank you. I, I interviewed a HR specialist recently that said in recruitment, when we ask people, what are your interests outside the job? And they say, I haven't really got anything. I really focus on the job. I want to be 100% professional. They don't hire them because they know that if the job goes down, they've got nothing else to fall back to. So they really want to have those outside interests in, in their candidates. So. Laurie, what about you? What would you leave our listeners and watchers with in, in terms of what it takes to lead in tough times? One of the things I think is really important for every career professional is to think about yourself and what's your mission, vision, and value. Just like a company would have those, those are important for you. They help you plan where you want to go in your career, but it's also important so that you know when to say no. If something doesn't, somebody asks you to do something or there's a career opportunity and it doesn't fit your mission, vision, and values for yourself, then that's something to pass on instead of, you know, considering it. So that's my advice. That true north. When times are murky and you're wondering what to do, it just takes you back to where you need to go, right? Avni, what about you? What thoughts would you leave our audience with to make the most of their leadership potential? When I first became a leader, I spent a lot of time thinking about like how to build trust. You know, I listened to the podcast. I read the books on trusted leadership. You know, I called on my experience building connections with different types of people. But since probably the last decade, I realized something, developing trust actually isn't very complicated. You know, to begin with, you know, you must be ready to remain patient because it takes years to develop. And actually trust, you know, you need consistency, communication, uh, which all of these are just building blocks of any type of relationship, right? Professionally or personally. So, you know, in my experience though, developing real trust also requires something else. You know, leaders like us need to have difficult conversations and those conversations are awkward. They're hard to tackle. Nobody wants to have them, but you have to have them. And second, you know, I think Gabrielle said, you know, we're all people pleasers. So my second piece of advice is no can be a complete sentence. You know, you don't have to have any explanation personally or professionally of why you say no. And it took me a really long time to learn how to say no instead of saying no because or no but. Um, And I wish I learned that a lot earlier in life. No can be a complete sentence. I'm not going to tell my wife that. But uh, ladies, that has been phenomenal. Thank you so much for your vulnerability and your candor today and your insights, your stories. That is... uh, giving our audience some real insights into what it really takes and the journeys behind the leaders at the top and the personalities and the different valid ways of doing it in today's challenging world. So uh, thank you so much for sharing your passion and your insights. Improve your practice while decreasing how hard you work work. to make your firm really fly. fly. Sponsored by Dext.